Welcome to the fifth episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Colin Jones. Colin, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Colin Jones. I'm software craftsman at 8th Light. Our titles are all software craftsmen. We kind of like think of ourselves as, you know, trying to craft and do the best job we can and always, always looking to get better and improve and learn from other people and stuff like that. So anyway, 8th Light's a company in Chicago area, mostly, office in Tampa, and we do all kinds of work. We do a lot of Ruby, a lot of .NET, a lot of Clojure. And I assume we're going to be talking primarily about Clojure here. This is, that's, our, that's our main functional language we use. Then we've got some people who are interested in Haskell and Elixir and Erlang and, and some other functional languages. But Clojure is the one we like the best as a company as a whole. Yeah, and you've got a little interesting background. I don't know if you want to kind of give people a little more background about how you came into programming. Sure. Because I know when we talked at Software Craftsmanship North America a few years ago now, and we've I've made it up a couple times and got to talk with you, but I thought your background was really interesting. So I, you want to give the audience a little yeah. history for those who are unfamiliar with you? Yeah, sure. So I came into programming relatively late. I'd taken like a class in college, intro to C++ or whatever, but didn't major in it. I majored in music and music and math, and then went on, did a bunch of more music stuff and did all the way through like almost finishing a doctorate in trumpet performance and sort of along the way while I was working my doctorate I sort of realized that like the classical trumpet performance jobs were pretty few and far between and even like a lot of my friends who are like amazing musicians were having a tough time getting orchestra gigs and stuff that they wanted to do and I figured it'd be a good idea to to learn programming because I enjoyed it in college and I learned some html and stuff so I ended up just get you know getting a sort of part-time job, slicing up some HTML and CSS and stuff, and then gradually learned more and more, and eventually came up to Eighth Light to Chicago to do their apprenticeship program a number of years ago. Just kind of kind of went from there. Yeah, it's interesting to see how many people have actually the music background, especially in the closure community. It seems when I start talking with people in the closure community, there seems to be a large amount of people with that music background. Yeah, it's interesting. I always tell people like people always compare. Whenever I tell people that I used to be a musician, that they're always like, oh, yeah, music and programming, they're, you know, the logic and the math, they're all so similar. And to me, they they don't feel that similar in terms of like the thought process. But to me, they're like similar in terms of like the people who are really good. Most of them that I know anyway, and the people that I respect and look up to and work their butts off tend to be people who are just sort of like almost to a level of obsessiveness, just like focused on the details and getting things like really good and really beautiful and very detail-oriented, very like focused on improving themselves and their art, their craft. So to me, that's sort of like the overlap is people just like who are really interested in getting better. got a small background just from middle school and high school, never pursued it. But I wasn't sure if from my little experience, again, like you said, the math and the kind of the theory behind it, having that mindset of digging into the theory as well as the practice of, okay, I got to go home and practice tonight. Otherwise, I'm not going to get better. Yeah, and for sure, and, and I know like the, there certainly are mathematical underpinnings to like harmony and structure and stuff like that. I'm not trying to downplay those. Just for me, that the overlap is more of a social thing. That was the second thing was the, just the practice type of thing. That mindset of okay, well, we're gonna go home, and I might have worked all day, but time for me to still go home and practice my my katas or whatever kind of equivalent yeah. to going and practicing the scales or practicing <laughs> this thing. Yeah, sure. I guess that's an interesting transition now. Maybe we'll just jump into that. But speaking of katas and things along those lines, you were a main contributor to the uh, Closure Cohen project, correct? Yeah, so Aaron Bedra and some folks at Relevance started that project in, I think, 
2009, something like that. And I, you know, I was just learning closure. We had done a book club at work that where we read the the first closure book that came out, Stuart Holloway's book, and we had watched the Peep Code that had come out also that like that had just come out. I think it was 2009 as well. Anyway, so yeah, I heard about this Closure Cohen's project, and I I knew about the Ruby Cohen's and thought those were fun, and so thought it'd be an interesting way to sort of take the stuff I learned in the book and apply it by just. Well, first, you know, working through the whatever they were, like three pages of exercises they had put together already. And then by, you know, seeing what I could do to contribute. And that was actually like the way I learned closure was writing a bunch of the closure Cohen's. So it was sort of like, I think, a backwards experience than a lot of the people I know, like at work and stuff who've learned closure, you know, starting with taking an hour or two and or depending on how much time they have back to back a day or so and going through the closure Cohen's and filling out the exercises. Maybe I should back up. The Closure Cohen's, for anybody who hasn't, hasn't seen them or done the Ruby Cohen's or anything like that, the idea is they're a set of exercises that are like essentially assertions or tests where you've got some, some blank to fill in. So there might be one that says equals, like in Closure, you got the parentheses, right, and the verb. And so it's equals blank true. And then you would replace the blank with true so that you would have at the end equals true true. And then that would pass that would be a sort of truthy result and it would pass the test. And that, that, that's how you go. And obviously like <laughs> they're not all that easy. You know, after, after a few pages of them or so, they, they start to get a little trickier for anybody who's not done higher order functions. They start to get tricky usually about that spot for most people. But yeah, so it, it was sort of an interesting experience, sort of like, you know, learning how to do closure by writing these exercises. And it was, for me, it was fun to just like, write stupid little jokey remarks as the text for the Cohen and and then have some sort of interesting exercise that built on top of the last one and tried to go in some sort of progressive order so that somebody could reason through them all, you know, with a REPL or something at their side so they could try stuff out if they wanted to. Yeah, it seems like an interesting way to approach the language. If nothing else, kind of that concept of having to teach someone you learn a lot yourself. So oh, when you're trying sure. when you're trying to come up with problems of how to express something, it makes you research what problems you can ask as well as what the answers to those problems are. So it seems like that's an interesting approach to learn a language. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For me, like teaching people how to do things is super helpful. Well, at one point when I was learning closure, I was having trouble remembering what all the syntax was around a feature called destructuring, which lets you, you know pull apart pieces of a data structure. And and so when I wrote the destructuring Cohen, it was great because I didn't I didn't really know it very well. So I was sort of forced to dig into all the details and figure out how the pieces work together and present them in a way that it sort of well it taught me as well as you know teaching whoever worked through it later. And that's hap- I think that's happened a few times to me. I've actually done a couple of blog posts as well that were done just basically purely out of me wanting to understand the thing better. So I've got one on namespaces that people in the IRC channel sometimes send people to. Basically, closures namespaces, there are a few different ways you can pull code in depending on whether you're talking to Java and whether you want to refer to a particular name. Like It's called a var in Clojure. And if you want to refer to a var as though it's in your current namespace or whether you want to namespace it in the code that you're requiring it from. There's a few different syntaxes and ways to do it, and that's different in a piece of production code than it is when you type it in the REPL. I mean, you can do it both ways in both places, but it's more typical to do it one way in the REPL and then one way in your production code. 
so when I wrote the, the thing on namespaces, I learned a ton, just sort of figuring out the doc strings, because Clojure's got a feature doc strings, right, where you can, well, you can, you can document the functions that you've got. And the ones that are built into Clojure are very detailed and very precise, and they tend to sort of specify what the behavior is of the code. But for a beginner to Clojure, those, are, those can be pretty daunting. It may take a year or more of Clojure experience to sort of be able to feel confident when reading those doc strings. So I spent a lot of time with those doc strings and with the implementations of the namespaces, just in order to write the post and to, you know, try and explain what was going on. So yeah, I totally agree with that. The teaching can help. Oh, and the other blog post I did was about quoting. Closure's got a bunch of quoting mechanisms to sort of take a piece of code and suppress evaluation that work in different ways, depending on which, which way you use them. But yeah, teaching is really fun and super helpful for progress for me anyway. Yeah, I saw the one on the quoting, and I saw the one on the namespace, but the quoting one was very illuminating for those who aren't too familiar with the way quoting and some of the macro stuff works in Clojure. Definitely recommend checking that out, and I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone who hasn't seen it. Maybe that's just a recommendation for people as they're starting to learn a language. Pick a topic, either put some blog posts up, or if that language doesn't have Cohen's, maybe see if they want to start a Cohen, you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. Always looking for people to contribute new Cohen's. I'm unfortunately way behind on managing my pull requests. Been pretty busy lately, but I will get to those eventually. I think there's there's two backed up or something like that. But yeah, we'd love, love some help. I think we have some ideas in the repository. It's, I'm sure we can put a link for the Cohen's in the show notes, I'm sure. Yeah, always looking for new people and comments on the existing ones, improvements to the existing ones. People are always posting little typo fixes and grammar fixes and stuff, which is great. If you want to learn closure and you don't know it yet, it's, yeah, it'd be great for you to blog about your experience and how things are going, how you're learning things, what's difficult, what's, what's hard to follow, because people come after you. We'll get a lot out of those. And I, there are also some community docs. There's a few sites out there. Uh, Closure-doc.org, I think is the name of it. Let's see. Documentation is all marked down as stored in GitHub, and they're really building up some great language guides there. So that's, a, that's another great way to get involved. Yeah, I contributed that a little bit last year to help hone my closure. Nice. Nothing like trying to write a description of some of the terms for a glossary Yeah. to help you understand something when you have to try and explain it to someone else. For sure, yeah. You've done a couple of other open source projects with Clojure, some of them which have gotten really integrated into the everyday tooling of Clojure, correct? Yeah, yeah, probably the main one is, is Repli, which is <laughs> completely like non-creative name but yeah it's a REPL and it's spelled like the word reply because I thought it'd be funny to have something that everyone pronounced wrong yeah I pronounced it REPL and I thought it'd be kind of fun to name a, a library with a stupid name that people would pronounce a different way than I did that was all but yeah anyway REPL is it's a sort of more full-featured REPL than the one that comes with the stock closure the closure.main that just comes in the jar file and so like it gives you things like command history and sort of a readline-esque navigation style that's powered by JLine. It's, the Repli is basically a project that sits on top of a lot of other really nice projects, JLine 2, which is like sort of the new generation of JLine. If anybody's used like the old JLine, this is, this is way better. It's not complete. There's still some issues we could use some help with, especially if you use Windows. But it's, the idea is it's all sort of mostly pure Java. There's a little bit of JNI to deal with the terminal itself. And then... There's tab completion was another big goal that we're using a library called Closure Complete there. there. There's a bunch of other, I mean, S jacket, there's a, a parser. We have to do some interesting stuff because we're using NREPL, which is a closure sort of REPL, networked REPL protocol that separates a client 
sort of client process from a server process, and the server would actually do the execution the client could send to it. And the benefit there is that you could spin up a an NREPL server somewhere, like, you know, in one process, and you could connect to it from Vim or from Emacs or any of that other stuff. And then each of these clients, the command line, whatever, don't have to rewrite all the all the plumbing that it takes to, to write a REPL. And there's all kinds of, like, middleware you can add. But yeah, so so yeah, Reply is pretty fun. Yeah, and it's it's part of part of Line Again. It is the Line Again REPL. So if you use Closure, you probably have seen it at least, even if you end up using Emacs or whatever day to day. I will point out for clarification for anybody who's really brand new to these languages, the REPL is a redevelop print. Right, right. So the redevelop print loop that you know the idea is it reads the code that you input. It then evaluates the code, and then it prints the result. And then once it's printed the result, then it reads the next line of input. In my case, it reads the next expression, and then it, you know, it evaluates that. And so in Repli, the, the eval part is remote. It may be in the same process. It may even be in the same class loader in Java speak, but it's constructed in such a way that it could be remote. It could even be over HTTP or something like that. And that kind of, you kind of touched on it with NREPL, that concept. It's one of the things that I found really fascinating about Clojure, which when I've been playing with Erlang some for work, was also fascinating, is where you can actually get into the live system as it's running. Yeah. Given appropriate authentication and authority. Right. But to be able to kind of do real-time monitoring of that system and seeing what's going, kind of the real-time tracing, correct? Right, yeah. And I'm not sure how it works in Erlang, but in Clojure, you would have to... I mean, it's not like I can spin up a closure app. Actually, there, there may be some way to do it with crazy Java debugger stuff. But for the normal case, you would spin up your, if you wanted to do such a thing, you would spin up a closure app with code that you've added to it that you know, spins up some server that accepts connections, um, like REPL connections sort of stuff, right? So you can embed an NREPL server in your production app if you want to. Personally, I, I don't do that. I haven't done it. I can see how it how it might be useful in some cases, but it's just one of those things I haven't, I haven't ever played around with or, or done. But yeah, the, the idea is, is pretty interesting. The idea that you could go and make changes to a live running system. But personally, like you typically, if I deploy a web app, it's more likely that I would just take that node out of the load balancer, shut down the server, throw in some new code, restart the server, put it back in the load balancer, which I'm used to doing in stuff like Ruby and, you know, whatever else. So yeah, for me, it's, it's not something I've dug into. Uh, I don't know if you, if it's a similar situation for other people in Clojure. Um, I've certainly heard people talk about it. So it may be that my experience is, is relatively unique. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just remember hearing about it in Clojure. And then when we started doing Erlang, it was really nice because we could create a process which ran on one machine, just got a small Erlang server and was able to attach to that main server and do some introspection for things of monitoring alerts and things like that, which is separate. So it could go in and say, can I go in and kind of ping the server and make sure it's still responding and maybe see how many, if you had an atom enclosure that counted the number of web requests that have come through, kind of go see, okay, how many web requests have come through in the past minute? Yeah. Kind of concept. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you could have some, could be almost like having a debugger for your for your system without without taking it down and, you know, throwing debug flags in it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is cool for sure. 
one of those things to see how you can balance the functionality you get out of that while still minimizing the risk of you screwing up a production system because you're hacking around on a live running system because you can actually change that code. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, with things like, I've heard people in in the chef world talk about chef infrastructure automation tool. I've heard people in that world talking about, you know, oh, you know, if somebody gets on the server and starts mucking around, it would be nice if we could just, you know, always set things back to a known state. I don't, I don't know whether there are actually tools for Chef to do that, but it's, it's one of these things that ops people are interested in. So I can imagine ops having a fit <laughs> about me logging into a live production system, mucking with data, or is, you know, especially mucking with, you know, what the actual program is without having it go through some release management cycle or whatever. Especially on your larger teams and where the production app is like, you know, affects a lot of people, right? It's a double-edged sword. It's like, ops doesn't want you doing it. They probably don't want to do it. But the <laughs> fact that as operations that it can be done, it's like, okay, can, can we actually see what's going on when this has failed with ops? And kind of work together and determine what's going on as the system's crashing and burning okay, to a halt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Eighth Light does quite a bit with closure, right? Yeah, we do. We're, we're starting to do more and more. I, I, I think... I don't know the percentages, but I, I would say probably most of what we end up doing now is Ruby still. We've, we've historically been a mostly Ruby company. We sort of you know pride ourselves on being able to do iOS, and, you know, Windows development, Java.net, whatever, you know, whatever the client needs, JavaScript. But yeah, more and more we've, you know, as more people have sort of gained some expertise in Clojure, we started to get both internal apps that we do in Clojure for you know, ourselves. And also, sometimes we have clients actually asking for closure, which is sort of blows my mind at this point. But yeah, we've 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 got some clients and that have done closure, and yeah, some that are I think at least two that are in process right now, which is which is fun. It's fun for a company to you know, especially for me to be able to actually. I'm not even on a closure project right now. I'm I'm one of the people who is not on one. But and and I think we've got two client projects and one internal at least one internal project in closure right now. Which is which is kind of fun that we're starting to get more more clients interested in, in using Clojure and yeah we found it to be really productive you know as productive as Ruby for sure and there's a lot to like about about immutability and uh, functional programming and macros and you know a lot of the things we like about software development Clojure makes very easy to do yeah it's been it's been really fun to 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 be part of a company who you know, who's not afraid to sort of you know, push the envelope a little and use the newer stuff as it comes out. Closure script, we're starting to use some closure script as well, which has been fun. It was tough early on, right? Like when I was getting into closure and I wasn't able to really do it during the day. So I would do my Ruby stuff, my Rails project during the day, and then I would go home at night and hack on Repli or closure cones or whatever. But it's kind of fun to be able to do it day to day. I know as you guys are a consulting firm, you guys usually can't talk about specifics of projects, but is there anything in general that you can find, kind of like lessons you you remember learning as you started working on Clojure for actual business apps instead of just tooling around it? Definitely. I mean, th- there's definitely an element of newness to the, to the stuff we're dealing with, right? Like, so we'd been doing rails development for a really long time and you know we we all sort of like that was a sharp tool for us right we knew knew how to use rails really well we were very quick at banging out crud apps and you know pieces of crud apps and crud functionality and apps and and using rails for what it was good at and then as closure came along like a lot of our clients end up as web clients 
we do a, a pretty wide variety of work, but we do do some closure websites. So it was a little tough. Like the, the ecosystem is very different. Closure is very is a community that's very focused on simplicity and having these these small parts that can be composed together to make apps. And it would be if you're in the Ruby world, it would be like closure in many ways is like building clo- the closure web development story. At least when we started doing it, was very much like you would take a small piece like Ring Enclosure, which is sort of like Rack in Ruby. And you know, there's a piece on top of that called Composure for Closure that's similar to Sinatra in Ruby. And so we could sort of see these parallels, but there wasn't it wasn't like a Rails for Closure that had you know everything built in, had lots of hours of thought behind it. And so we definitely sort of had to find our way as far as like how we wanted to structure larger projects. As Closure gets more mature, people are sort of finding how they want to put these bigger apps together. Cognitect used to be Relevance is, has got this project pedestal, which is sort of like large web application interactive experience, a lot of cool front end stuff going on. And there's Erlang's got Web Machine and Closure's got something similar to Web Machine called Liberator, which I just learned about at ClosureCon last year, which is looks really awesome. Yeah, so I mean, we definitely sort of had to find our way around the ecosystem and, and learn. You know, a lot of times build some of the pieces ourselves, like testing library that Micah Martin, CTO for our company, made. But yeah, it's most, mostly ecosystem things. I mean, there's certainly been some interesting language things we've learned about when, when to avoid macros and when they can be helpful and stuff as well, obviously. Definitely learned a lot about how our knowledge from the OO world sort of carries over into closure. That's probably been one of the really interesting things to me is that, you know, how much of the OO knowledge actually carries over, right? A lot of times there's this dichotomy, oh, you know, OO sucks. And yeah, there are things about OO that suck, but I mean, there's a lot that I think suck anyway. A lot of things tied together that we don't necessarily want to use together. But there's a lot about OO that the smart things that people have discovered about building large systems in OO a lot of that carries over, right? A lot of the things about polymorphism and how to manage dependencies in a way that's going to make things easy to take apart and use together and use separately. A lot of those rules can still apply perfectly well in Clojure. So that's, to me, been one of the really interesting things is figuring out how much sort of carries over. I guess on that note, too, what have you found carrying over in your working with functional languages into the OO? Have you noticed you pulling a lot of that stuff back into Ruby in the way you work? Yeah, I've sort of gone back and forth on that. Like there have been times when I I just want to, you know, pull everything back over and, you know, write little modules in Ruby that have pieces of functionality that I enjoy in closure, doing things like using hashes and hash maps sort of thing in places where I would ordinarily use a class. And in a lot of cases that can be really, really kind of cool. But there are also things I don't like about that in the OO world as well. Like well, okay, so for, for instance, Clojure's got a lot of great features around laziness. And in Ruby, Ruby has a lot of the same features, but they're a little harder to get to. So that's sort of one of the things I've ended up sort of not doing as much of in Ruby. I, I don't know whether it's because just the problems I've worked on have been different and haven't required laziness, or if I'm just so used to using Ruby's normal array functions that I just never reach for the lazy one. But Clojure, with the laziness being built in, I just end up going straight for the lazy stuff. Maybe maybe that's what it is that I, makes me not go for the lazy stuff in Ruby. I certainly end up writing less mutable stuff when I go back to Ruby and Java. I don't go to the extreme anymore. <laughs> I did when I first got back into Ruby after Clojure was 
I used to do these things where I would try my hardest to make sure this object was immutable, which is, as you know, like if you've done any OO, it's not always the easiest thing, right? sections of books about this, right? It's, it's a thing that you get by default in Clojure. And in a language like Ruby, you've got something like freeze, which can help out, but I don't end up doing that very often anymore. But I do find myself like just having having objects that really just don't have any state, right? Maybe or or maybe they don't maybe they have state, but it's only the state that they were given upon construction and it never changes. And methods in the class do operations on it or something like that. I feel a little bit better about that than you know, having a bunch of methods that mutate the, the innards. Certainly written some of those as well. But yeah, the, the immutability stuff is pretty powerful, I think, having that by default. Yeah, I was uh, kind of asking because I know when we were coordinating the show, you mentioned you were kind of, you were going to be doing some training with some object-oriented, and I didn't know how that was kind of affecting that. Yeah, so I've taught a few classes recently about, you know, things like the solid principles and you know, how to write unit tests and how to refactor code. And, but honestly, like a lot, of, a lot of that stuff is, as I mentioned, like things that carry over, like the solid principles to very large extent just, just carry straight over. They, I actually did talk about these at Closure West a few years ago. It's up on InfoQ somewhere. But yeah, I mean, a lot of them just have, you know, sort of direct analogs. Like just to give you one example, like the single responsibility principle in OO traditionally, it's, you know, all about, a class should have one responsibility, one reason to change. So to me, that in the closure world, sort of like a no-brainer, right? A function, especially if it's an actual function, right? If it's a function that has no side effects and just returns a thing, right? That's the only thing it does. It just returns this thing. In one sense, that's one responsibility. Of course, you know, obviously the function could be doing a lot of stuff under the hood. But to me, like having a single responsibility, having one reason to change, that's sort of the core of the sort of rich Hickian, the opposite of complexing, right? I say simplifying or separating instead of decomplect. I don't like the word decomplect personally. But yeah, I mean, I mean to me, it's you know, the exact same idea, right? So it's been a very easy transition. And, and you know, I can, there are classes about these OO principles and, and, and how, to do, how to improve the quality of your software in the context of you know, writing Java. But you know, I'll pull in examples from C++ or from Ruby or from, from Clojure sometimes. And certainly poke people every now and then about learning new languages and, and getting getting more up on stuff. Yeah. Uncle Bob, who's one of the eighth light people as well, was the guest on the first episode and he made an interesting comment about how functional and object oriented programming are really two kind of orthogonal concerns where you can take the functional concepts and apply them to OO languages just as well. You can take a lot of OO concepts and apply them to the functional languages. And I think you just kind of reiterated that as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know that they're necessarily orthogonal. There's definitely pieces of OO that, like, you know, sort of like OO, one of the core things is you've got you've got this state that you're encapsulating and it probably mutates. So maybe not orthogonal, but certainly like principles from both can be applied to either, I think. We can certainly learn a lot in both directions if we're sort of willing to give up our there's there's a logical fallacy about that i don't know which i don't know what the name of it is but you know the idea that you know you select you know one tiny bit of the other person's argument and that part's wrong therefore the rest of their argument is invalid right that's an invalid argument right yeah you also kind of mentioned the testing framework that micah has wrote as far as an eighth light uh if i'm not misunderstood that's that's pronounced speckle it's s-p-e-c-l-j yeah, yeah, the CLJ is kind of a, a joke. I don't, I don't remember who came up with that, but it was 
Yeah, Speckle. <laughs> Speckleger, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Speckle is, is basically the idea for it was that Micah wanted, we, we tend to use RSpec in Ruby, so he wanted um, something like RSpec for, RSpec for closure. I think the libraries that were out at the time were closure.test, the one that was built in. At least the ones we knew about were closure.test and Midge, Brian Merrick's library. And closure.test, for what we wanted to use it for, felt a little... Well, it, it it didn't feel it didn't feel as fully featured as, as what we wanted. We wanted to do like, well, it, you know, uh, to, to be honest, we just wanted something that was familiar, right? We wanted something that was like what we were used to doing in Ruby, and you know, we didn't want to have to think too hard about how to do our tests and stuff. Midge is really interesting. It's it's really cool stuff, and I know a lot of people really enjoy it, and I I, I like the idea a lot. I like the way the tests read. I, I think it's it's really it's really nice looking testing library. For me, I I just didn't personally want to invest the time into into learning this new paradigm for for testing. It, it's not that different than what you're used to. I, I I would I would suggest you know people looking at at all three of those and also maybe expectations on Jay Fields library. You know, seeing what they like and picking whichever one appeals to them. I like Speckle. It's, it it was one of the first to have an auto runner built in, which is a pretty cool feature. You know, and just that way you you don't eat the JVM time start JVM startup time every time you run your stash, you just keep them running and they, they'll reload stuff as, as, as they need to. But yeah, Speckle, Speckle is cool. It works well, you know, it, it runs tests. And we like having, you know, we, we like having unit tests that sort of like tell us that our assumptions about the tests that we've written still hold, right? Doesn't necessarily tell us that the code's perfect or that it, it, it works exactly as we expect, but it tells us that the things that we've tested still work in the way that we originally specified. So that's kind of cool. And and what I really like about Speckle these days is that it runs under ClojureScript. Micah took a couple weeks to sort of play with the guts of, of Speckle a little bit and, you know, rip out um, the stuff that was JVM specific and put that in one place and rip out the stuff that was sort of agnostic and put that in another place. And that way the ClojureScript version can can depend on, on a lot of the same code. I mean, there's honestly just very little code that's platform specific about Speckle. So it's kind of cool to, to have, you know, the same testing library that I'm used to using. I can just keep using it on the client side, which for me has always been like sort of a weird thing. Like I'm doing my web development or whatever, and I'm running my JUnit tests, my RSpec tests. And then when I want to go test my JavaScript, I have to, okay, I got to, you know, spin up Jasmine and go to this whole other thing, this whole other way of testing, which is has always been kind of kind of an annoyance to me. But maybe that's just JavaScript. Maybe I just never, never liked JavaScript. Maybe that's the deal. But ClojureScript has been has been much, much, much more fun for me. And ClojureScript, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, it's it's, uh, it's a, a a sort of dialect, I guess, of Clojure that runs on on the JavaScript virtual machine. So you can run in the browser. I think there are some people who have worked on wiring it up to Node. It certainly runs on Rhino. But yeah, it's it's kind of a cool kind of a cool thing. It's definitely the edge. So it's I think the version is like zero point zero dash or dot, you know, some four digit number, which is basically how many commits have been made. It's early days. There's no sort of semantic versioning. Well, or maybe it is semantic versioning if it's zero zero something. But things things could break, right? Things things are changing fast. But it is fun. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's it's great to be able to sort of take all the lessons I've learned about structuring my code and how how my dependencies should be laid out in closure what what good namespace design looks like 
stuff like that to take all those lessons and actually apply them on the client side as well. It's been really nice. Cause I, I personally, I've never written a large JavaScript app. I was, I was very happy with, <laughs> with the way I structured it. Um, I'm sure lots of people have, but yeah, closure script has been a lot of fun. We've actually been using closure scripts for some, some client work and some internal projects. It's good. It is a thing that, that may break sometimes, right? When you up, maybe it's not going to break if you, if your version works and you just keep, keep writing more code, but if you bring in a new library or need to upgrade the version of closure scripts or whatever, before they make any guarantees about what the contracts, you know, any, any guarantees about what, how stable things are going to be, you may need to sort of be ready to go fix bugs in the libraries you're using or go around and change some things in, in your usage of closure script. Yeah, I wanted to kind of touch on the speckle because I know 8th Light preaches a lot of test-driven development and those extreme programming style practices, pair programming and such. So with the differences of wanting to make sure that those unfamiliar with Clojure could get a story about testing and testing functional languages, Clojure specifically, from someone who essentially, whose company extols that virtue and does that a lot. Yeah, 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 we like unit tests. We we like doing test room development. Yeah, and it's, it's it's nice to have to have those things running all the time and CI to tell us when we break stuff. Yep. You've also mentioned that in a just previous correspondence that you've started playing with Haskell a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So Haskell is really an interesting language. I, people have been telling me for years that I should dig in and learn some. For for me, it's 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 really interesting. Like I I kind of like I, I had a colleague tell me at some point that static types are like free tests. And I was like, wow, free tests. That sounds like something I would like, right? Like, so I don't have to have to write these tests. You know, of course, they're, I assume that they're not really free. I assume he was exaggerating, like that you there is some cost associated with writing in a statically typed language, maybe you need to do more thinking up front about stuff about how things are structured. I assume that there is stuff you lose, because you have to spend more effort or something. That's what I've always assumed. Anyway, so the idea is that I, I would now like to find out whether that is the case. So I've been learning a little bit of Haskell, and it's been fun so far. I haven't, I haven't you know, written anything real. I've just, there's a website, exorcism.io, E-X-E-R-C-I-S-M.io, I think it is. Great website. It's got a bunch of different languages you can learn, and it's it's another one of these exercise-y things, but exorcism is very much more – they're larger problems, let's put it that way, than the closure cones, and they're more real problems. They're not just fill in the blank. They're like, here's a problem. Here's a set of tests. You have to pass all these tests, um, and you actually write the code yourself. So I've done a few of those in Clojure, and uh, but more of them in Haskell, really. And it's great because people it's, – it's not like you're either right or wrong. It's like you submit your code, and then – like a human will look at your code and tell you what's, you know, presumably a human who knows the language. It's, it's I think the rules are it's got to be a human who has already completed that exercise. And so, you know, you get people who are really interested in, in the language. A lot of times people who are really good at the language. The person who was giving me Haskell feedback was, you know, just great feedback. It, it gave me all kinds of references to books I should read and some, you know, performance characteristics and how, how the spine-strict data structures work in Haskell and when to avoid laziness in order to, you know, get reasonable performance on, on big data structures, stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it, it's been a really interesting jaunt so far. I, I haven't, like I said, I haven't done anything real, so it'll be interesting down the road once I've, once I've got some actual programs under my belt to see uh, how, I, how I like things. But I'm definitely seeing a lot of 
similarities between Closure and Haskell. Like, a lot of the, the laziness stuff, focus on laziness. There's a lot of lessons, I think, that, that Rich Hickey took from Haskell and, uh, you know, <laughs> hordes of other languages, right? It's not surprising that there, there, is, there are some similar things, but it, it's been fun. It's been a fun language. I ask because Haskell's played with Closure, still need to do some more with it. Working with Erling some. Haskell's probably the next big one I'm going to pick up soon. And I've heard very good things about it, but I was all, I've also heard it will break your brain even if you have done other functional languages. <laughs> it's generally that much different, more, I guess, the absolute purity of the language. And wasn't sure what you had found starting to play with it, making the transition with Closure as well. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I've read a few, like, typically if, like, when I'm learning a language, I'll read a few books on it and, you know, try and get a few perspectives. And yeah, for sure, the books I was reading were definitely breaking my brain. Even though the book I was reading was this book called Learn You a Haskell for Great Good. It's got kind of a jokey looking cover. It's got some sort of animated picture on it. And it starts off, you know, reasonably straightforwardly and, you know, easily, easy to read and stuff. But then, um, you know, by the end of the book, you're talking about these these category theory concepts, which I think at this point, I'm pretty close to, to having a good grasp of, but they definitely like... They're not they're not trivial things to to understand. At least for me, they weren't. You know, they're not that complicated, but neither were they easy for me to wrap my head around. It's interesting because from the OO world, you hear about Martin Fowler and the null object, which, as I got into functional, was kind of the maybe monad, where it may or may not be null, but it's chained together, so you can keep operating on it without having to introduce the checks. But having not digged into it, the fact that IO was all coming from a pure function and wrapped around some of these monads seems to be something that's very interesting in a concept, and I'm going to have to get some guests on here to help explain that. Yeah, that would be great. As well as dig in and say, how do you actually work with pure functions and do side effects like talk to a database and save a database or write out I.O.? Yeah, well, I, I look forward to hearing those episodes. I mean, my impression has always been, I'm probably speaking out of turn here, but my impression has always been that you know, you you got your your I/O type that this impure function has, and it you know any function who wants to use it needs to know about this I/O type. Maybe it accepts one as an argument or something like that. But yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I'd, I'll I'll be interested to hear hear what you what you find out. Yeah, and just because you touched on it, I do want to I do want to kind of extol the interest of exorcism I/O as well because it's one of those things as learning a language. I've signed up, haven't gotten a chance to play with it because I've been getting this together and working with this. Hopefully, my editing time will get cut down some and I'll get a chance to play some more, but the fact that you actually get code reviews from the people who do a language with the encouragement of good feedback sounds like it's an insanely valuable tool as well to help learn some of these languages and not just learn the concepts, but help learn the idioms as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely found my, like, I'll, I'll find myself, you know, as I said, when I learning language i'll read a book and i definitely find myself nodding along with the book and understanding when i read it and then when i go to actually type out a program i'm like ah, what is all this stuff i just learned i forgot it all or i didn't learn you know the right thing or maybe i spaced out who knows but with this you know you actually you type in the code yourself you make it pass you get the experience of typing in the editor and for me that's really helpful it's a different world between understanding a concept and like actually doing it yeah just more of, I guess the term is deliberate practice. And not just deliberate practice, but deliberate practice in an area where you actually get feedback 
on what you've done. Yeah, feedback is huge. Yeah. I practiced, I practiced, I practiced, I practiced. I built websites, but I don't know that they're any good. Yeah, there's that famous saying, right, like that there's lots of people out there who have 10 years of experience and there's other people who have the same year of experience 10 different times. So, yeah, I definitely would like to be in the first one and, you know, have a variety of experience and have, you know, be exposing myself to different sorts of stimuli, learning new languages and getting people to give me feedback and tell me how I'm doing. Yeah. It's been real interesting so far. I know that you've got something in the works. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable talking about that and giving our listeners oh, yeah. a little yeah, introduction sure. and something to look forward to? For sure, yeah. So I'm writing a book on closure macros with Pragmatic Press. Yeah, so the, the idea is, you know, it's going to be a book about how to write macros, why to write macros, uh, you know, what situations you would want to use them in, but also, you know, what problems macros can cause, how and why to avoid them, you know, when you can. So, you know, it'll go through the whole, you know, how you construct these things, you know, quoting and unquoting, I know, and macro expansion and compile time versus runtime. You know, for me, when I was starting out, it was really confusing. I think they're confusing for a lot of people. So, yeah, it'll sort of be like a tutorial and a field guide sort of thing that sort of takes you from knowing a little bit about Clojure. I expect that you'll – it's not going to be an intro to Clojure book. I expect that people will know some Clojure, but maybe maybe they just don't have a real great grasp of macros. Or maybe they do and they, they want to learn more about what other people are doing and how, how to figure out when to use them. So that's, that's the goal of the book. It's going to be a short book. 100-ish pages, something like that. But yeah, so I've been working on that, and it's been a lot of fun. Been getting some great tech review feedback, some some helpful things to improve. Yeah, and it's, it's, I, I think it should turn out to be a good book, I hope. I hope we'll see. Well, you mentioned Prague Prague. Did that come about as, I know they all put out a the National November Writing Month type of thing. Was right. that part of a project you did, kind of just to help learn, kind of how you did your blog post to help learn, or did it kind of, how did it kind of come around? No, well, I I'd been thinking about about writing a book for a while, and macros felt like a good a, a good topic. They've they've been covered pretty well in the common Lisp world. There are a couple really good books that are go really deep into macros. On Lisp by Paul Graham is a really fine book, out of print, but you can still get. I think you can get a free copy on the internet for. I think he he distributes it on his website. And then there's another book by Doug Hoyt called Let Over Lambda really mind-bending, crazy stuff you could do with macros. But those are both really good books in the common list world, and I felt like it'd be nice to have something like that for closure. So yeah, so I just ended up submitted the idea to Prague Prague, and they liked it, so we've kind of gone from there. Sounds awesome. Definitely look forward to uh, getting that on early release and checking it out and seeing how it comes when they do their beta books and get it in and out. So looking forward to that. Yeah, thanks. Is there anything else you would like to plug? Do you have any upcoming appearances, any other projects we haven't touched on that you kind of want to promote, or do you have any other recommendations in general of things you think people would appreciate? Any any good books for people checking out functional or blog posts or papers or anything else you want to... This is your little soapbox time, so whatever you want to mm, say that we haven't gotten a chance to cover. And Interesting. We covered a lot of stuff. I was going to definitely plug the macros book, so we got that. Books and papers. There's lots of really good books and papers. You should read them all. No, uh, so, okay, I'll give you a couple interesting books that I've read recently within the past couple years. One of them is one that David Nolan recommended to me. It's called Concepts, Techniques, and 
what is it, Con- Concepts, Techniques, and Models? I don't know. I, it's CTM. CTM, if you just search for like CTM Computer Science, you probably find it. But it's by Peter Van Roy, Concepts, Techniques, and Models of Computer Programming. By Peter Van Roy, and it's a really interesting book about programming languages and programming in general, how it, how it works. And the, the ideas in it are really interesting. He sort of takes these this kernel language, this like tiny, tiny language that has you know some small set of features, and it'll gradually, gradually like add a new feature. Right? He'll add it'll, it'll be a, a pure declarative language, and then he'll add something like assignment, or he'll add something like concurrency, or logic programming, or constraint systems, and stuff like that. But all on top of this very, very tiny language, and you're seeing what what the consequences are that fall out of those things. Uh, one of the really interesting pieces for me was the idea of data flow programming and concurrent programming where it was actually deterministic based on you know, using these data flow variables, which, you know, when you read the book, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's, it, it's great. It's a big book, daunting, but it, and it'll take you a while to get through, but you should totally check it out. If you're not willing to check it out, you should check out the Twitter feed of one Michael Bernstein, Barn, Bernstein, Bernstein, believe Bernstein I don't know MRB underscore BK great Twitter account he's always tweeting tweeting great books to read you should also follow Fogus on Twitter a lot of times we'll tweet some good uh, papers and stuff to read so yeah I think I think most of most of the papers and stuff I, I mean there's tons of papers out there I I couldn't I mean out of the tar pit I think somebody mentioned on your show before but that's a, that's a really great paper but other than that you know those are, those, those are my recommendations you should follow MRB BK and read CTM I'll personally have to check those out. It sounds really interesting. What do you have going on? What do you want people to know while you're here that you No talks coming up or anything. I'm very staying very busy with the new new baby and writing the book. So yeah. And work of course. That sounds awesome. Enjoy the little one. We got a little one and I'm enjoying her too, so Oh yeah. So where can people find you online if they'd like to track you down and follow you and see what's going on with you? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, maybe I should have plugged myself. So my Twitter account is trptcolin. So letters T – well, trpt is in like trumpet, but you know, with all the vowels and the M taken out. Uh, and then Colin, C-O-L-I-N, trptcolin on Twitter. I don't tweet that much. I'm not noisy. Okay. Yeah, I'll link to there and I'll link to – your blog site on Eighth Light. Yeah, eighthlight.com. Yeah, if you're, uh, if you're, you know, especially if you're a, a new developer, but you know, if you want to want to come to Eighth Light and, and do an apprenticeship and learn, we'd love to have you. I'm sure. I can't speak for the apprenticeship, but I've been up to the Software Craftsmanship Conference a couple times, where we first kind of got in contact, and you guys hosted the code retreats. Yeah, those are always fun. Yeah, I can attest to doing the code retreats with the group of guys up there, and that's always fun to go through as well. So definitely have people check you guys out. That's my recommendation. And I guess I would also say I would also say if anybody's in the Chicago area and they're looking for some do some Friday afternoon, we always have an eighth late university, and we have somebody gets up and gives a talk at noon, and then we work on open source stuff for the afternoons. So that's always fun, and everybody's welcome to to come check out the talk and come hack on some open source stuff with us. Sounds great. Sounds like a very interesting thing for people who want to check out Clojure and make it to the Chicago area on a Friday as well. Yeah. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, I would like to thank Colin for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you again. Great to talk with you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.